Hi everybody, good to see you here. It'd be great if you can uh, get out your Bible. Uh, if you've got a Bible with you, that would be excellent. Otherwise, you might like to look on with the person next to you. It'd be really helpful if you could uh, open up to the book of Isaiah. You might like to turn to Isaiah chapter 52. Now, I'm an old man, so this is quite dangerous. I know. It's, this is against all the OH&S regulations of the university and the EU and the EU grad fund. Anyway, um, why am I doing it then? Very good question. Because I'm a rebel. Uh, it's not because I'm a rebel. <laughs> Look at me, I'm not a rebel. Um, this looks a bit dangerous. There's a bit of a fall there in front of me, isn't it? For those uh, listening on the MP3, I'm standing about off, 10 metres off the ground. <laughs> okay, no, okay, a metre and a half. Um, why am I standing here? Because in chapter 40 to chapter 66 of the book of Isaiah, God's people, the nation of Israel, are standing on a precipice. If you were here last week, you know I was trying to explain that to you. They were standing on a precipice and the chasm in front of them was the chasm of God's own judgment on his own people of sending them into exile. I tried to tell you last week, going into exile is not a pretty thing. That's a terrible, terrible, terrifying prospect. God's people were standing on the precipice because God had said to them through the prophet Isaiah, you will go into exile. There is no sort of, maybe this will happen. There's no a warning. It's, it's going to happen. You're going into exile. What a terrifying prospect. But also, in the, in the, as they stand on that very precipice, he gives them a word of promise. A word of promise. Which is comforting to them, even as they head into God's righteous, just judgment on them for their sins. So there's, he's not going to rescue them from going into the precipice. They are going into the chasm of exile, but he promises to deliver them out of it at the other side. That's the context of Isaiah 40 to 66. Now the thing is, what is driving them into the precipice? Well, it's the fact that they've rejected the one true living God. They've actually said to him through, you know, God had spoken to them, God had rescued them out of Israel, and God had spoken to them time and time again through the prophets. But Israel, God's own people, had said, basically, we don't care what you think, we're going to do our own thing. I'm going to worship these gods that I made in my backyard. Yeah. They were worshipping all sorts of gods. They weren't worshipping, they weren't living in service and love towards the one true living God who actually had created them to be his own people. So actually at the heart of their problem was what the Bible calls sin. That attitude that says, God, you can take a hike, I'm going to turn my back on you, and I'm going to do my own thing. That was at the heart of their problem. The big problem facing them wasn't the exile per se. The big problem was actually their heart problem of sin, of rejection of God. That was what was going to drive them into exile. So the word of promise that God gives them isn't just, I will deliver you out of exile. He does say that. But ultimately the word of promise is so much bigger than that. Because the word of promise he gives is actually going to address the heart problem that was driving them into exile. He's going to address their sin problem. Now, I don't know about you, but 
I like doing my own thing all the time. Like, I've been a Christian for a long time and I love the Lord Jesus and I want to, I want to live for Him. That's my deep heart desire. But even, even amidst that, I still so often find myself doing things I know that God would not have me do. I lose my temper yet again for something that really is just an act of selfishness. I really, I think thoughts that are not thoughts that bring glory to God. I go all sorts of ways. I, I have a sin problem, actually. You have a sin problem, if I can be so bold. How is God going to deal with their sin problem? I mean, he hasn't dealt with our sin problem, has he? Like, I mean, I've... What's God going to do? Like, to deal with a sin problem is easy to say, but that's astounding to think he would actually do it. How could he affect that? Well, what I said in the uh, book of Isaiah, particularly from chapter 40 to chapter 66, is at certain moments, God pulls back the curtain and reveals to you how he's going to do his things, how he's going to fulfill his promises. And we saw last week it happens in, in what are called these servant songs where God pulls back the curtain and you realise that the centre of God's plan is actually this enigmatic, shadowy silhouette of a person, a servant. And what we're going to find out today is how is this servant going to do something or feature in God's astounding plans to overturn the sin problem that has infected all of his creatures. That's what we're sort of looking at today. Okay. Now, to show you that the sin problem is the big issue, um, it would be helpful if you can have a bit of a look at what I've got up here on the board. Now, what I've tried to do, done, do for you here is there are, you may remember, five servant songs in the book of Isaiah. They occur in chapters 42, 49, 50, 52 to 53, and 61. What we did last week is we focused on just the servant song in chapter 42, and what I said was that song in 42 has similar themes to the ones in 49 and 61, and so we sort of covered it that way. This week we're looking at the servant songs, the third and the fourth servant song. I'm going to focus in on the fourth servant song in chapter 52 to 53 because what's in chapter 50 is, has some similar themes, so that's what we're going to do today. Now, I said to you last week there's a danger with these servant songs, which are glorious parts of the prophecy of Isaiah is that you just look at these. But every single one of these occurs in a context within the book of Isaiah. So what we're trying to do by looking at this fourth servant song, I'm actually trying to show you in this top board here how that works within its immediate context. Here's the, from chapter 51 to chapter 55 forms a bit of a unit in the book of Isaiah, in the prophecy. And so I want to show you how it fits together. So I'm not going to go through this in great detail, but this may be useful to you. And to try to summarise it for you, I've just got sort of one word for each subsection, because that's about as much as we can handle at this end of the year. Right, so the first subsection, chapter 51, verses 1 to 8, is really under the heading of listen. And remember, Israel's, God's people standing on the precipice, but God gives them a promise. Here he gives three promises in this section. Three times he, he starts with the word listen. He says, Listen, and then again he says, listen, and then a bit later on he says, hear. Those three sort of promises there in that section. Let's just look at the first one. Chapter 51, verse 1. You can see it starts there. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. So this is the first command to listen. 
But the, the bit I want to focus in on is verse 3. The Lord will surely comfort Zion. Right? Here's this word of comfort coming to God's people. And he will look with compassion on all of her ruins because they're going to go into exile, which means that their Zion, Jerusalem, is going to be overrun. It's going to be a ruin. Let's keep going in that verse. He, the Lord, will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Now let's think about that promise for a moment. What's actually on view in this promise? I mean, he said, yes, I'll have compassion on Jerusalem. I will rebuild the ruins. That sounds good. That's sort of like a return to what you were before you went into exile. But then he says, your deserts will be like Eden, the garden of Eden. Well, hang on, let's think about that. Where's Eden in the Bible? That's sort of Genesis chapter 2, isn't it? That's going way back. Genesis chapter 2. Now, Genesis chapter 2 occurs because, you know, I'm pretty clever, before Genesis chapter 3. And what happens in Genesis chapter 3? Well, Genesis chapter 3 is where the sin problem appears. Genesis 3 is actually where humankind first turns us back on God and says, get stuff, I'm going to do things my own way. He's saying... I'm going to make your deserts like it was in Eden. That's before the fall. That's before the curse. That's be- He's not just promising that the end of exile, is he? Something bigger is on view here. This is actually returning reality to what it was like at the very beginning before sin, our sin, stuffed it all up. That's what he's promising. Do you see what's on view? It's the sin problem. That's massive. That's a massive promise. So, we have these uh, series of three promises in the first part of chapter 51. When you move through to chapter 51, verse 17, to chapter 52, verse 12, you have the three commands. So, the first section of three promises is balanced by three commands under this heading that I've just called, So. That is, these are three commands of how you're to respond to the fact that God is going to do these promises. And again, there's there's three of them. Let's just look at the first one. Chapter 51 starts in verse 17. You can tell where these three commands come because each time it starts with a double uh, imperative, a double call. He says things like, awake, awake. Or again, 52 verse 1, awake, awake. Or a bit later on, depart, depart in verse 11 to 52. You can see the three commands. Just looking at the first command, look in verse 17. Verse 17 of uh, chapter 51. Awake, awake, rise up Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You who have drained it to its dregs, the goblet that makes people stagger. Then jump down to verse 22, still in this first section. This is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I've taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. Why am I pointing this out? Well, when does God's wrath first come into the Bible? God's wrath, when does it first appear? It was back here, wasn't it? Genesis chapter 3. When humans sin, that's when wrath first comes. The first promise was, I'm going to make it back like Eden. The first command talks about how you're never going to have to experience wrath again. Do you see how the, the big picture here in the first, com- first promise and the first command is all about something, he's going to do something about this sin problem. 
Something's going to mean they're not going to have to suffer the curse of God's wrath. Something's going to return it back to what it, the way it's sort of meant to be under the plans of God. This is the context, right, for this section. Now then the question is, well, how is he going to do this? Well, the middle bit I skipped over under the heading of how, chapter 51, verse 9 to 16, sort of tells you. Have a look there, chapter 51, verse 9. Awake, awake, arm of the Lord. Clothe yourself with strength. Awake, awake, uh, or sorry, awake as in days gone by, as in generations of old. Was it not you, speaking about the Lord, who cut Rahab to pieces? Rahab is sort of a poetic name for the nation of Israel, so it's a reference back to the Exodus. Was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces, who pierced that monster through? How does the Lord bring about these promises? Awake, awake, arm of the Lord. He does it by his mighty arm. That is, the one true living God rolls up his sleeve and he gets busy. Not making nice little cupcakes for you. Not doing some needlepoint. The arm of the Lord wins a salvation like he did back at the mighty Exodus where he pierced Egypt through to deliver his people. That's what's going to happen. Think, oh, that sounds good. So the Lord's got to get in there and do it. That's how it's going to happen. Except that he doesn't actually tell you how he's going to do it. <laughs> so you get through these all these sections. You go, here's these great promises. This is how you sort of to respond to it. The arm of the Lord's going to do it. But he still hasn't actually told you how to do it. So you get to this next bit here, which is the servant song, the fourth servant song from 52 verses 13 to 53 verse 12. And the heading here is C. That's how it starts. And the key is this enigmatic silhouette of a man, the servant of the Lord. This is where the curtain pulls back and you see this silhouette of the servant of the Lord who stands at the centre of God's purposes and bringing about all these promises. Have a look at chapter 52, verse 13. Here we have the servant song. See, my servant will act wisely. And if you jump forward a bit in the song to chapter 53, verse 1, he continues, Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? There's that reference to the arm of the Lord. The arm of the Lord, we suddenly realise, oh, here it is. The arm of the Lord is this servant. The servant is the arm of the Lord. This servant stands at the centre of all of God's promises here. He's going to be the one. And frankly, this servant sounds pretty awesome. Have a look back to the beginning of the song, 52 verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. You know, the last time we saw that sort of language in the book of Isaiah is actually back in Isaiah chapter 6. Now, do you remember what happened in Isaiah chapter 6? <laughs> it's right back at the beginning of the year. But it's one of those fantastic pages where the Isaiah gets a vision of the one true living God. And what does he say? I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Same language. Used here of the servant. See, my servant will act wisely, says the Lord. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. That's awesome. This servant is a 
towering figure. Very impressive. Except that it all then goes weird. It all then goes completely pear-shaped. This doesn't sound right at all. Let's keep reading chapter 53, verse 14. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, hang on, appalled? His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. Now, this is all starting to sound a bit strange. He's so disfigured, he's so marred that he doesn't even look like a human being should look. People are appalled at the way this servant looks. He's high and lifted up, but now he's all appalled. What's going on there? In fact, it then gets worse. Have a look um, in chapter 53, verses 2 and 3. He, this servant, grew up before the Lord like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. That sounds okay. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Oh, well, that just makes him like everybody else. I mean, I've got no beauty that you're particularly attracted to me in, I trust. Um, so, you know, that sounds not great, but not bad. But man, then, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by others. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. I, I'm familiar with a few things. I don't want to be familiar with pain. That doesn't sound good. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Here is a suffering servant. One who suffers, who's familiar with pain. A suffering servant. And in fact, if we'd been following the servant songs all the way through, we would have noticed this was a, an increasingly prominent theme. If uh, in the second servant song there is just one little phrase that's like one little dark cloud. If you just uh, want to flick back to Isaiah 49, verse 7. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation. Just one little phrase in the middle of this servant song that something says, hang on, this servant is going to be despised and abhorred. It's only one little phrase and you sort of, it really sounds a clanging note as you read through that song. You think, oh, that's a bit weird. As you go on to the next one in chapter 50, it, the clouds, if you like, get bigger. The dark clouds over this servant. Chapter 50, uh, verse 6. The servant himself says, I offered my back to those who beat me my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. It's getting considerably worse for this one. And then you come through to where we are, 52 and 53, and you realise just how big and dark those clouds are over this servant. He's going to be familiar with suffering and pain. In fact, as we keep reading in the song, it gets even worse. Can you believe it? Chapter 53. Verse 5, he was pierced. Who did we just see who was pierced before, actually? Who was pierced? Who pierced that monster? Pierced that monster through. The Lord pierced Egypt. That meant Egypt really suffered, right? Now it's the servant who's pierced. 
He was pierced. He was crushed, we read there. In fact, uh, keep going down uh, to verse 7, second half of verse 7, we're told, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. So he's, he's pierced, he's crushed, he's led like a lamb to the slaughter. You think, oh, that's all, surely that's all. I mean, that sounds terrible, but it's metaphor, right? Like it's crushed, pierced, led like a lamb. It's, it's metaphor, right? Except that you read on and then you realise, oh, it's not metaphor. It's literal. So if you read on then in verse 8, second half of verse 8, he was cut off from the land of the living. Well, that's pretty clear. And verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Suddenly he was, oh, crushed, pierced, led like... That's not metaphoric, that's saying. That's how much suffering will this servant undergo? How much pain will he be familiar with? He is going to be crushed, killed, dead. That's what's going to happen to this servant. That's how bad it will be. Well, it's not then surprising really. I mean, if you think about a person in a Jewish context, a person from the people of God who experiences so much suffering and pain, it's not surprising that as a a Jew, you would sort of go, go, surely that person experiencing so much pain, surely they are under God's curse. Surely they are somehow, God is against them. And you can see that's the reaction people had in verse 3. He was despised. We held him in low esteem. Or verse 4, the second half. We considered him punished by God, stricken by God, and afflicted. When you see, you think, surely... God is against this person. But the weird thing is, when you read this song, this servant has actually done nothing wrong. You can see that there in um, verse 9, second half of verse 9. He had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. This servant, though he suffers terribly, is actually innocent. So some of you go, this is... My goodness, I suddenly realised. Like, he suffered terribly... We thought God was against him because look how he suffered. But he's actually innocent. Injustice! Injustice going on here. Except that then you're really thrown by verse 10. Verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Right? That, that is as close to a knockout blow as you might go. Here is this servant, exalted, lifted up, esteemed, but actually not esteemed, familiar with pain. He's innocent, and it's the Lord's will to crush him? The Lord's will? God wants to have this guy die? That makes no sense. That doesn't seem right. It was the Lord's will to cause him to suffer. So, how do we bring all these things together? That's a lot of sort of lead up, isn't it? Trying to get you into all of this. Here we go. What we've seen so far is God wants to do something about the fundamental human problem, the problem of sin. He's pulled back the curtain on how he's going to do it and says, here is the guy, the servant. That's how we're going to do it. I'm going to do it through my mighty arm, through this servant. This servant is innocent. 
at my will that he die. How does that work? That just doesn't, that doesn't make sense. Well, the answer then is, here in the song, verse 4. Here is the, the moment of revelation. Here is the spotlight, if you like, that, that shines onto the silhouette. It doesn't tell you who it is, but it's a spotlight that, high, that highlights what this servant will do. Verse 4. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Now, hang on. Go back to verse 3. He's despised and rejected by others. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. And the moment of revelation comes, you go... Oh my goodness, oh my God, our pain is what he's suffering. Our suffering is what he's bearing. It's not his, for his wrongdoing. He's innocent, but it's our suffering, our pain he bears. That is the moment of just profound revelation inside that comes to the prophet Isaiah here. It's really like, I think, you know, you know how sometimes there's some parts of the Bible that you just read and you, you're so familiar with that you sometimes don't get the words? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever might believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. You know, what a profound truth that John 3.16 is, but you know how it just runs over you? I think this verse, I feel like that. Surely this servant took up our pain. I feel like the word our should be written in like major capital letters that take up about half your page of your Bible and should be, much as I don't like red letter Bibles, but it should be in multiple colours, you know, rainbow. He took our pain. He took our suffering. And that's the note that's, that's um, repeated again and again throughout the whole song. Verse, uh, verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. Verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And if you start breaking out in some sort of stupid little children's song, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Sing! What the heck? No, feel it. The Lord has laid on him my sin. My sin on him. Amen. This is the note that struck again and again and again through this astounding song where the spotlight comes onto this. He took. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's why he suffers. That's why the Lord leads him to death. That's the astounding revelation that comes in this particular sermon song. This really is the heart of what God is going to do. This is the heart of his plans for how he's going to overturn the sin problem. How's he going to make it back like Eden? How's he going to make it possible for you not to drink the cup of his just wrath against your sin? Because he's going to make the servant drink it. He is the heart of what he's doing and to make this possible. And really the whole Old Testament was a preparation 
for this moment of revelation, if you like. So yeah, it says there in the uh, song, in chapter 53, verse 10, the second half of it, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And, and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, literally a guilt offering. Now, if you know your Old Testament and you're familiar with the Old Testament sacrificial system which the Lord gave to his people, go back to Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 6 and 7, which I'll leave you to look up later, that's where the Lord gave the initial instructions about this guilt offering. The guilt offering where you brought a lamb because you had sinned, you brought the lamb and the, and the priest would slaughter the lamb in front of you, sprinkle its blood around and make atonement in that way for your sin. And you know, day after day, month after month, for centuries, God's people had offered these sacrifices. Literally a temple awash with blood. What do you think, as a Jewish person, that would have taught you? As you kept bringing your sacrifices, seeing this animal die because of your sin, blood splattered around. What does that teach you when you experience that? Day after day, month after month, year after year of your life. I think it teaches you several things. It teaches you one thing. It teaches you that sin is real. Teaches you sin is real. If you've experienced that Old Testament sacrificial system, you know sin is real. It's a real thing that has a real cost, requires real business to be done with God. Teaches you sin is real. Secondly, it teaches you sin is actually an offence against God. It's not an offence just against other people. It's not even in some ways an offence against yourself. Sin is ultimately an offence against God. If you sin in a way that doesn't affect anyone else and you can kid yourself that it doesn't affect you, it's still an issue. There's still a problem. Though no one else might be suffering. Sin is actually an offence against God and atonement needs to be made with God. Third thing it tells you is that you can't just ignore sin. You can't just dismiss it. I think about this all I think this all the time, right? I just think, oh, I know I do plenty of things that are not ideal and not the way God would have me do, but oh well they're not a big deal. I mean really. I mean I'm not doing really bad stuff. I'm doing Stuff, but it's not that bad. And what's more, you know, surely God can overlook that. I mean, I overlook things all the time. My children sin against me every day. They really do. I mean, tragically, I sin against them too, occasionally. Maybe more than occasionally sometimes. But, um, you know, they really do sin against me in ways that they are selfish, in a way that they won't actually respond to my loving correction, in a way they actually won't, um, you know, let me help them live a fruitful or a holy and righteous life. And they resist that. No, I will not eat breakfast. I want to play Lego. And stop speaking so rudely to me. And the irony is, of course, I've spoken in nice, gentle tones, and that's, but that's what I hear back, you know. Like, oh, they sin against me, I know that. But what's more, do I say, right, well, retribution needs to be paid for your sin, and here it is. No, I, I try to encourage them to live more holy lives, and I overlook it. I say, it's okay. It's all right. I let that go through to the keeper. You know, like, I overlook it. Surely God can do that with your life. Surely. I mean, if, if he expects me to do it, surely he doesn't have a double standard. Surely he will do it. He's perfect. He can do the, that much better than I can. When I grip my teeth to do it, he can do it lovingly, graciously. Surely, surely he can let it go. 
We think that all the time, don't we? And we think, oh, there are bad sins, but, you know, mine aren't that bad. But actually, if I really push it with you, you, you do care about sin. If someone gets a key and scratches your car, it's okay, it's all right. I forgive you. They take the, the cricket bat and they smash the windows of your house. I forgive you. They break into your house and steal all your Apple products, your iPad and your iPod and your... I forgive you. They do something against your family. They do things that should never be done to people. You're just going to overlook that? No. You, you and I both know there, are, there is a point. There's a point where you go, actually, this matters. Actually, you know what? Our problem is we just draw the line in the sand in the wrong place. Because what that Old Testament sacrificial system was doing, it was teaching us that actually all sin matters. Not all sin is the same in terms of its impact on people or its consequences, but all sin actually matters. All sin is real. All sin is actually an offence against the one true living God. And all sin, therefore, as a matter of divine objective justice, needs to be dealt with. You can't just sweep it under the carpet. It's not just. It's not right. And what that Old Testament system really was communicating to God's people is atonement needs to be made. But the moment of revelation you get when you get to Isaiah 53, this servant song, is you know what? You suddenly realise all those sacrifices couldn't actually do it. They couldn't actually atone for the sin problem. It required the servant to do it. It wasn't okay for a ram to bear your guilt. It had to be a person to bear your guilt. And that's the moment of revelation that comes here. And then, of course, many years later, many years later, there was an Ethiopian who was in a chariot and he was going away from Jerusalem. But he wasn't riding a horse, but you know, if I imagine to go something. He's going away from Jerusalem. He's reading this part of Isaiah. He's reading Isaiah 53. He's reading it. And then suddenly, oh, hello, beside him, running along, was a dude, a Christian, called Philip. Okay, Philip sort of appears. And uh, let me read to you what happened next in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Verse 32. This is the passage of Scripture that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading from Isaiah 53. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me please, who is the prophet speaking about? Is he speaking about himself or someone else? Good question, frankly. Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Who is this enigmatic, shadowy figure of the servant? It's not until you see a man crucified on a cross that you go, See my servant. Behold my servant. When you see Jesus on the cross, there is the servant, not in shadow. 
but in reality. And the New Testament authors, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they say, here is the man who fulfills all that the servant was going to do. So if you go, you can look this up later in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 to 25, Peter the Apostle reflects on these passages from this servant song and he, he points to Jesus and he says about Jesus, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. That's what was happening at the cross. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what happened. Now, I'm waiting to find out what time it is. It's two o'clock. Fair income. What a shame. So much more to be said here, isn't there? So this is what we'll walk out with then today. Even though we're going to stop here. It's this. If you're worried about your sin, if you're worried about the fact that maybe God's got something against you, the answer is simple. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Come to Jesus. Have your sins taken by him to the cross. Appropriate all that he's done by entrusting yourself to him in faith and repentance. If you're feeling guilty for stuff you've done in the past, guess what? Don't feel guilty if you've come to Jesus because he took your sin to the cross. He took your guilt. The talk today was called The Sins of the Saviour. What were Jesus' sins? They're your sins. He took your sins to the cross and paid the penalty. So praise God for that and take hold of that wonderful salvation. I have a one-sentence prayer of thanks and we'll go out to open to Heavenly Father, thank you for this day and for the opportunity to reflect on all that you've done for us through your Son, the Lord Jesus. Please help us to have this truth deep into our hearts and minds that we might come to Jesus, receive your mercy and pardon and, and share that news with others so that all your creatures may rejoice in your salvation through your servant. In Jesus' name, amen. See you afternoon. See you.